All right, praise the Lord. Thank you guys so much for joining us. You know, I just wanted to uh, piggyback on what Anson said and really encourage you guys to sign up for Guest Chef. Normally, we have a whole month kind of to uh, run up to the event. This time, we only have two weeks, so I just want to encourage anybody who is interested, please sign up. We're actually going to a different shelter this uh, time. We're not going to the adult emergency shelter, but we're going to the family shelter where they actually have parents with children. Uh, so it's a huge blessing to go and to serve these families, including the, the little children who live, live at the shelter. So please, uh, if you're uh, wanting to be blessed and be a blessing, then please sign up. Okay, um, open up your Bibles to Joel 1, 13 through 20. Joel 1, 13 through 20. If you're joining us here in person, you'll see it up on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, you will see it on your screen at home. Joel 1, 13 through 20. Okay, this is God's word. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests, wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and, ha and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The sea shrivels under the claws, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, for the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Let's pray. Father God, you are holy, Lord, um, and Lord God, you are enthroned in the praises of your people. And Lord God, we know that you are here with us. You are always with us. And Lord God, we know that you are a God who is not distant, but you are an ever-present help in time of need. And so, Lord God, even as we look at your word, Lord God, please speak. You are always speaking. You are always working. We simply need to be in the right frequency and be attuned to you. And so, Lord God, tune our hearts to you. Help us to hear you. Help us to, Father, open our hearts wide to you and receive your word by faith. We thank you. Lord, be with us today as we fellowship and worship and, and get to know you and get to know one another. Lord, be with this day. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, one time I was listening to an interview that was being done uh, with somebody, and this person teaches and writes books at a very popular level, but also at the academic level. And I remember during that interview, he said something that really stood out. And he said, life is pain. Life is pain. Now, I've heard this guy before, and based on other things he said, I know he's not this overly pessimistic kind of person. He didn't mean that life is only pain. That's not what he meant. He didn't mean that life is even mostly pain. But I believe what he meant is life will always have pain in it. So no matter where you live, who you are, when you live, pain will be a part of your life here on earth. So that's the human condition. Okay, that's the reality we live with. And of course, we all know that's true. Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have tribulation, John 16, 33. 
Do you know what the dictionary definition of tribulation is? It's grievous trouble, severe trial or suffering. So he's not talking about a roommate who's annoying or you not getting a parking space. He's talking about severe trial or suffering. Jesus told his disciples, you will have this in this world. So Christianity is very clear and very real about the pain and suffering in this world and is not unique to Christianity. But pretty much all the major religions and major philosophies in the world have wrestled with this reality that life is pain. And yet, if you were to kind of take a survey of what people believe out there, what religions teach, their response to pain and suffering is very different. It's very different. I remember coming across different teachings by theologians, but they have identified four different ways that people tend to respond to suffering. So four different ways. Let me just mention them. First, there's the docetic view of suffering. Docetic, D-O-C-E-T-I-C. And basically, this view denies the reality of pain. It sees suffering as kind of like an illusion of the mind. If you've ever studied Eastern religions, this is where Eastern religions kind of lean towards. But for example, Buddhism. My dad was interested in Buddhism at one point in his life. But Buddhism teaches the truth of suffering. That's their first noble truth. So they go, yeah, there is suffering in the world. But then it goes on to teach that the primary cause of our suffering is attachment to desires. So they say that's the main reason why we suffer is we just desire things. So for example, our desire for material things. See, if you don't desire any material things, then there's no pain, right, if you're poor. There's no suffering. Your desire for pleasure, even relationships. And so if you don't desire these relationships, if someone's taken away from you, then you don't suffer. And so Buddhism teaches this, and they say suffering will only end when we let go of all attachments and cease to desire, even healthy desires, like desire for their children. I remember hearing this one woman one time, she was in a monastery really training uh, to be a Buddhist, and the most difficult thing in her life was to be away from her family, but she was repeatedly told again and again, you need to let go of those desires. That's the reason why you're suffering. So even healthy desires. So anyway, that's one response to suffering. Here's another one. Hedonistic view of suffering. The hedonistic view. This view sees suffering as a terrible intruder in life. So whatever it might be, it needs to be eliminated at all costs. So you need to minimize pain and maximize pleasure at whatever cost. And if you've lived in America, then you know this is basically our culture's response to suffering. Is you need to minimize pain and maximize pleasure at all costs. So if you have a painful marriage, what do you do? Get a divorce. Okay, maximize pleasure, minimize pain. Maybe have an affair. Maybe do both. So no price tag is too high. You know, years ago, I remember uh, hearing about Jonathan Edwards, not the theologian, but the politician. But he was a presidential candidate. You might remember the story. But basically, his wife caught cancer. And she was getting treatment for cancer, going through terrible suffering and suffering for the family. And then during that time, this man decided to have an affair. Maybe he wanted to cope with his own suffering. And so in that process, he basically threw away his marriage, his family, and even all hope at being president. So for this man, no price was too high to minimize the pain and maximize pleasure. So that's another way to respond to suffering. Here's a third way, the stoic view of suffering. The stoic view. Okay, this view accepts life for what it is. People who are stoic say, yeah, life is pain. 
But what can we do, right? There's little we can change about that. There's little I can do about the stuff that happens to me from the outside, but here's what I can do. I can change my response on the inside, and there is some truth to that, right? But they believe, well, I can dig deep, and I can suppress these bad emotions and my bad reactions to suffering. I can suppress all that. I can decide to let nothing get me down. So these people simply accept the reality, they grit their teeth, and then they endure. And by the way, a lot of Christians have this approach. A lot of Christians, even though they believe in the gospel, they believe in Jesus Christ, day to day, this is their approach to suffering. And there's even this kind of moralistic attitude about it. This is the moral way to deal with suffering. You just grit your teeth, you get through it. right? No pain, no gain. And yet, the Stoic view, like the other views, still minimizes the reality of pain. Why? Because they're just suppressing it. Other views say it's an illusion. Other views just try to get rid of it. Well, they just suppress it. So they're still just minimizing it. But there's finally a fourth view, which is the biblical view. There's a biblical view to suffering. And the biblical view does not deny suffering. It doesn't minimize suffering. But instead, it redeems it. Right, it redeems suffering. So going back to what Jesus said in John 16, 33, Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. Again, that is not something annoying in your life. That is severe trial and uh, suffering. So Jesus said, yes, life is pain, but he didn't stop there. Immediately afterwards, he said what? But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. In other words, Jesus pointed his disciples to the redemption of their suffering. You're going to suffer. Some of it will even be terrible in this life, but be of good cheer. I've overcome it. And by the way, this is not a redemption of our suffering that we do, right? Jesus said, I have overcome the world. I've overcome it. How did he overcome the world? By dying and rising again. And we can talk more about it later. <laughs> I always love the, the back and forth Q&A time. But anyway. <laughs> but Jesus said, I have overcome the world. And so now for those who are in Christ, God is working all things, especially the worst things in life. I'm talking about cancer, COVID, disaster, hunger, financial ruin, the loss of a loved one, persecution for your faith. He's working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So in other words, God redeems our suffering. He's always redeeming our suffering. And so this is basically the message of the book of Joel. Okay, that was a long introduction to what I want to say here. But that is what Joel is talking about. But in the day of Joel, ancient Israel was facing a terrible crisis. But basically, this plague of locusts came down upon their land, caused this incredible famine. People were going to starve, even die. And in the midst of this crisis, God sent Joel the prophet to deliver God's word. And so Joel rises up with great poetry, great skill, prophetic theological insight. It's an amazing little book. Quoted maybe more times than any other book in the New Testament. Little book. But Joel rises up and he tells the Israelites, God is not only aware of your suffering, he's what? He's the master of your suffering. He is sovereignly in control of your suffering. And what was God's purpose for their suffering? Okay, what what is God doing in appointing suffering in their lives? Well, he was going to redeem it. 
He was going to take their suffering and use it to produce something good. And so this is what we've been looking at for the last few weeks. But God, first of all, he used suffering to reveal their sin. To reveal their sin. Because sin needs to be revealed. By nature, sin blinds. See, people who are deep in sin, they don't know it. They can't see it. Why? Because sin blinds. This is why your roommate keeps eating the food in the refrigerator that's marked for you, right? Why does he do that? Why is he so selfish? It's because he's blind to his sin. So that's what sin does. And so God, in his mercy, comes and reveals it. He peels back the covers. He uncovers your heart in order to reveal the sin that is there. So God appointed this terrible crisis to come upon Israel to reveal their sin. So we looked at this, but everyone from the drunkard who's living for pleasure in the moment, taking God's blessings for granted, a lot of people live like that today, the elderly who trusted in their own wisdom and knowledge, the priests in the temple who turned their religiosity into their righteousness, they were self-righteous, the farmer who was working day and night Not because they were doing it for love, but because they had turned work into God. So they were trusting in their work to provide for them, to satisfy them, to save them. Literally, it was God to them. So whatever it may be, whoever it may be, God came and just peeled it all back and said, look at your sin. See, this is God's mercy. So God revealed their sin to them. And ultimately, all of their sin was basically the same. They had turned away from the living God. This is what God was doing. He also used their suffering to cause them to come to an end of themselves. So that was another thing he was doing. And this is not a bad thing. This is a good thing. But the end of ourselves is the place where there's no more planning. There's no more spinning. There's no more manipulating our way out of a situation. I believe this is the point of Joel's devastating words about the crisis in verse 16 through 20. But in these verses, we just read it earlier, but Joel is talking about just how devastating this thing is, this locust plague. Well, why? Why go into detail, Joel? Well, I believe he wanted to make it clear. You're not manipulating your way out of this one, Israel. Yeah, I want you to see exactly what is going on in our land. You're not getting out of this one. You're not going to spin your way out of this crisis. But we have come to the end of ourselves. So Joel says, wail, mourn, cry out to God. You know, over the years leading this church, I think back. Oftentimes when I'm laying in bed, that's what I think about. I think about all the years that I've gone by leading the church. And whenever trials come, whenever trials came in the past, one of the things that God did, and it's so clear now when I look back, is he was bringing me to the end of myself. I know that's exactly what God was doing. Why? Because unless God did that, I would not cry out to him. I know myself. I would not deeply and continuously from the heart cry out to him. I wouldn't cry out to the only one who could save me and save this church. That's how foolish my heart was. But I could go on for a very long time planning, spinning, making charts, you know, networking, trying to manipulate situations, try to make things happen. I can do that for a long, long time. And that's why God finally had to come and bring a crisis. To do what? Reveal my sin. Bring an end to myself. Because, we can talk more later, but all the things in our lives is from God. God is absolutely sovereign over our lives. We can talk more later. 
But God does that, and then we cry out. There are no accidents with God. That's what I mean. There's no accidents or coincidences in life. But everything is appointed by God. But this brings us to the third way God redeems our suffering. He uses it to make us cry out to him and return to him. So this is the third thing that he does, why he brings suffering. And this was Joel's message to the entire nation of Israel in chapter 1, verses 13 through 20. But he called the priests and the ministers to lead the way in calling out to God. This is what he told them. But he told them to cry out in repentance. To cry out in unison. Gather everyone together. Do it together. Cry out in faith. And then finally cry out for salvation. And Joel, he not only told them to do this, but he actually set the example. But he himself cried out to God. Look at verse 19. Joel said, To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. So this is the starting point of turning back to God. If you haven't done this, and you haven't turned back to God yet, but this is where it all begins. But you must cry out to him. And this is not something unusual that God is pressuring us to do, but rather us suppressing this cry to God. That's unusual. Okay, that's unusual. But in every human being, there's this natural impulse to cry out to God. Okay, that's how we're created. It says in Genesis 4.26, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Okay, what time? This was shortly right after man rebelled against God and was driven away from God's presence. And shortly after that, even in that fallen state, people began to call out to God again. Why? Because that's just the natural impulse we all have. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So this is why every culture, nearly every culture throughout history, throughout the earth, has been religious. See, that's the norm. Okay, don't, don't believe all the stuff these days about atheism and how it's growing. But religion is the norm in human history, not atheism. And the reason is because people have a natural impulse to call out to God, even if they don't know who that God is. Even if it's a false God, they don't know that, but they just have this impulse. Even while they're cut off from the one true God, they're still following that impulse, and that's why they're calling out. That's why nearly every culture throughout time, throughout the world, has been religious. It's as natural as a young child crying out for their mom. Why is that child crying out for the mom? Because he came from her. This is what the Bible says about us. We're made in his image. We came from God. So what I'm saying is, this is not something unnatural that God is calling us to do. So we shouldn't suppress that impulse to call out to him, especially in a time of crisis. But this is the very reason why God will appoint crisis into our lives. Whether he allows it to come in or whether he directly brought it, either way, he's appointed it, right? He's appointed it. And why? God, why? Why is this in my life right now? Well, it's so that you will cry out to me and you will turn back to me. And so this was basically the message of Joel. So starting last week, this is what we began to look at, but we looked at the two first two ways of how we can cry out to God. Because this is exactly what God is wanting us to do. Cry out to him. So first we looked at crying out in repentance. God wants there to be true repentance beginning to form in our hearts that bubbles up and then goes out through our behaviors. But this is true repentance. It is a heart condition that sees our own sin and then mourns over it. It's not just feeling sad because you have consequences because of sin. Feeling a little bad about what you did. 
but it is a seeing and a mourning over sin. It is a heart condition that confesses, I can't do anything, God. I can't offer anything. There's nothing I can do to make myself right with you. That is true repentance. It is a heart condition that no longer desires sin, even though you are going to sin again, but you don't desire that anymore. You desire God. This is true repentance. And all of that, it is forming in the heart, and then it begins to rise up, and then it goes out through your behaviors. See, that's how you know you've truly repented. Otherwise, you just had a bad day, and you just feel bad about it. But how do I know that I've truly repented? Well, do you have this heart condition that I just described? And do you see it rising up and then moving out through your behaviors? See, this is what Joel was talking about. This is why he called the priest. You set the example Begin to repent and let it show through your behavior. Put on sackcloth, wail, mourn, stop worshiping at the temple. It stopped anyway. Begin to lead the people in this repentance. Show it through your actions. This is true repentance. So this is the beginning of coming back to God. You got to cry out in true repentance. We also look at crying out in unison. We have times of doing this alone, but... By and large, God says, when there's a crisis in your life, call your friends, right? Tell your community group. Tell the church. Gather people together. It could just be with one other person, three other people. It could be with your community group. It could be with the whole church. It could be with all your friends at you know, school. But cry out to God together in a time of crisis. Okay, this is what God desires. And so these are the first initial two ways we could begin to cry out to God. And today I want to look at the last two ways we must cry out to God. Okay, the last two ways. But number three, okay, this is number three. But we must cry out to God in faith. Okay, in faith. So crying out in faith. If you look at Joel 1.14, the second part, Joel said, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So right there we see the call to gather together, but that's not the focus here. But I want us to focus on gather them together where? At the house of the Lord your God, and then cry out to the Lord. Now if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, you might just skip over that and go, okay. But this command to gather all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God the reason why Joel said that is because somebody else said that in the Old Testament. You know who? God said that. God said that to Solomon, King Solomon, and the Israelites at a different time, many years in the past. But God said that before. And this is what God said in 2 Chronicles 7, 12 through 16. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night. Solomon was the king of Israel at that time. He appeared to Solomon and God said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Talking about the temple. I've chosen this temple you built for me as my house, a house of sacrifice. Listen, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land, God's saying there will be a time when I bring these locusts and it happened. But he says, when I command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. And then he says, listen, now my eyes will be 
open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. Do you hear that? God says, when you come to this temple and pray like that, at a time of great crisis, he says, my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. So this is what God told Solomon many years before Joel. And I think Joel was remembering that. That's why Joel was calling this gathering at the temple. Go there, Israel. We're facing a terrible crisis, a life-defining crisis. Go there and cry out to God. Why? Because Joel remembered this amazing promise that God gave to Solomon and the Israelites. And what was that promise? The promise was basically, I will answer your prayer. So please, remember that. I will answer prayer. If you will just come to the place I have designated and cry out to me in this way. And by the way, God had already demonstrated that he would answer prayer that is prayed in the temple. Okay, when did he show that to the Israelites? Well, just a little bit before, earlier in the book. But at the dedication of the temple, Solomon rose up. It was a massive temple. They sacrificed tens of thousands of animals. The whole nation was there celebrating, worshiping. And then at the end of it, Solomon raised his hands and he prayed. Let me read it. 2 Chronicles 7, 641 and then 7.1. Now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. O Lord God, do not turn your face away from your anointed one, remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So what am I talking about? Solomon prayed, oh God, don't turn your face away from this temple and from us, but come to your house, come. Come to us, fill this place. That's basically his prayer, right? And then what happened? Immediately after, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, I actually read in a commentary that the Hebrew says, as he was wrapping up his prayer, so even before he finished, God said, he answered it. Yes, I hear it, I answer it. And he came down. As soon as Solomon finished, or as he was finishing, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So what was that? God was saying, yeah, I'm going to answer prayer if you pray it from this temple. And then shortly after that, he actually directly gave that promise using words. But he told Solomon exactly what we read earlier. My eyes will always be open. My ears will always hear when you come to this house, my house, and pray in a great time of crisis, even crises that I have brought. But, but why, right? Why, why is the temple so important to God? And please stay with me because this directly connects to how we're to pray, how we're to cry out in a time of crisis. But, but why? why? Why the temple? Well, it's because the temple was God's house. It was the place of God where his presence dwelt. It was the meeting place between God and his people. It was a place of worship where, where people can come and seek God's face. It was also the symbol of God's covenant with his people. This is where all the promises are made and the promises are kept. It was a place of forgiveness of sin through sacrifice. See, sin is a barrier between us and God. And for the Jew, the temple is where that barrier is removed. 
For them, it was through animal sacrifice, but that was pointing to a greater sacrifice, right? But this is where the sin barrier was removed. One Bible scholar said, above all, the temple remained the lasting symbol of God's will to forgive. It was the lasting symbol of God's forgiveness, of God taking away our sin. It all happened at the temple. And so because the temple was all of these things, please pay attention, it was also the place of open access to God, right? I mean, think about it. If that's where God is at, his presence, if that's where our sin barrier, our barrier between us and God is taken away, if this is where all his promises are yes and amen, then where do you think you're going to have the greatest access to God? Where do you think God's going to hear your prayers? It's going to be at the temple. It's going to be in the temple. And this is why Jesus called God's temple a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. You're doing all these other crazy things here. But this is supposed to be a house of prayer. And so God said, if you come to my house and cry out to me here and have faith. Faith in what? These promises that I've given you. That if you come to this house, I will hear you. If you come and cry out in faith in these promises I've given, then I will hear, I will answer. I will answer. And so this is exactly what Joel was calling the people to do. And not only answer the prayer, but what what did God say to Solomon earlier? He said, I will heal your land. This is what Joel, I believe, was believing in. If we cry out to God, God will answer. He will heal our land. What kind of healing? Well, I believe this is physical healing, a literal restoration of the food supply, the resources that were all gone, okay, the removal of famine and plague. But even more than that, I think he's talking about spiritual healing. There's spiritual healing. In other words, there will be forgiveness of your sin. I mean, why is this plague of locusts even here? Okay, why is crisis even hitting our world? Have you guys thought about that? Okay, I'm not here to pronounce things over the world, per se, but I've read different things and people kind of struggling with why, why did COVID hit the world and why is it still here and why have so many people died? And at least biblically, I have to say from the word of God, well, God appointed it for his purposes. Some of it was judgment, but some of it was to bring people back to him. But this was God's call. Okay, this was God's purpose. So he, he was going to bring spiritual healing even through the worst crisis, this was his intention, to bring healing, forgiveness of sin, to bring people back to God. So this was an incredible promise from God. But here's the point. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Joel commanded the Israelites to go to the temple and cry out to him there. Why? Because that's where God will answer your prayers in time of greatest need. If you will just believe in God and have faith, that's where he's going to hear and answer your prayers. And this means probably very little to you unless you're in a time of crisis. If you're in a time of crisis, this is everything to you. Right? What, what could be more important than that? I'm in a life-defining crisis right now. Again, I'm not talking about a parking ticket. Okay, this is defining my life right now. I might not ever be the same after this. I don't know where to go, who to turn to. I cry out to you, God. Right? I'm a Christian after all. I'm going to cry to God. But you're telling me he has made promises to hear me? If I pray to him in the temple... And my answer is yes. Yes, this is his promise. This is the cry of faith. You need to cry. Well, then now for the believer, but there is no temple anymore. It's been destroyed. If I go to Jerusalem, there is no temple. So how do I pray in the temple? Well, the New Testament is so clear. For the believer now in the New Testament, Jesus is our temple. He is the temple. 
John 2.19, Jesus said, destroy this temple, talking about the physical temple. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was talking about the temple, he's like, I'm not talking about this building. I mean, this will be destroyed, yes. And it did happen, AD 70. But he's saying, I'm really talking about my body. He's saying, I am the temple. And if you think about it, isn't it so true that everything that the temple in the Old Testament represented for the Jew, now Jesus represents to us, right? So Jesus is now God's presence with his people. That's where the Jews went to meet God's presence, the temple. Well, where do we go now? Jesus. Jesus is God's presence for us. Jesus is how we can worship God and seek God's face. Jesus is a symbol of God's covenant with his people. Jesus is how we can find forgiveness of sin through his sacrifice. How do we get that barrier of sin between us and God removed? Through Jesus. Jesus is where we can have open access to God. And so now, when you come to Jesus, this is how we can pray and have our prayers be answered. It's Jesus. He is the temple. And this is why Jesus said in John 14, 14, if you ask me anything in my name, he didn't even say the Holy Spirit or God the Father. He said, if you ask anything in my name, what? I will do it. It will be given to you, right? I will do it. I will do it. How many Christians leave that check neatly tucked away in the drawer of their desk? They they, they don't think about it. They They don't look at this. And that's why we don't pray. We don't come to God. Even times of crisis, we don't seek God. We don't have a cry of faith that that rises up. But Jesus said it's so clear. I am now the temple that you must come to. You need to run to me. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In other words, if you pray anything in line with my will and my ways, that's what he meant by in my name, then I will do it. I will do it. And if you begin to pray, God, please forgive me. I repent. Please, I want to come back to you. I want to be near you again. Do you think he'll answer that? Absolutely. Oh, God, save me from this crisis. Do you think he'll answer that? Absolutely. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And again, if you're in a time of crisis, if you're not right now, you're like, okay, this is nice. (laughs) But if you're in a crisis... I'm talking about life-defining, and I've been through several, and I'm sure you have as well. But if you're in a crisis, what could be more important than praying to God and knowing in your heart, God hears me, he will answer me? What could be more important than that? There's nothing more precious than God's promise that he will answer your prayer in a time of crisis. And how do you know that? Because I'm in Christ. He is the temple now that I run to. God God said it in the Old Testament. I, I just read it. If you cry out to me in this place, my eyes will be open, my ears will be attentive, and I will heal your land. I will heal your life. And Joel said it in another way, very beautiful, but I will restore all the years the locusts have eaten. So if you're in a crisis now, do you have that kind of faith? Okay, that's really the question. Do you have that faith? Do you have the faith to believe God's promise and then cry out to him with that faith? This is what I'm talking about. This is the cry of faith. See, a lot of Christians, they repent. They might even call some friends to pray for them. They pray together, but then they stop there. But they never get to that point of crying out in faith. Oh, God, 
Move this mountain, right? Do something great in my life. I am in a great crisis right now. And then believing, God says, yes. Yes. I will. Ian Bounds, he was a great man of prayer. He lived in the 1800s. The legend says he regularly woke up daily before dawn and prayed for hours, even as an old man. But Ian Bounds said, all true believers who truly pray will be answered. All true believers who truly pray will be answered. Again, do you have faith? Do you believe that? Well, some of you might say, okay, but God doesn't answer my prayers. I don't have testimonies of answered prayer. Roy, I remember you sharing a few in the past, but I don't have any. So why would I expect him to answer my prayers in a time of crisis? He didn't answer my last prayer, the last 10 prayers. Why would he answer my prayers now? Or in a time of crisis? Well, if that's you, if you're asking that question, I want to remind you, you already have a testimony of answer prayer. Okay, every Christian has a testimony of answer prayer. What am I talking about? What I'm talking about is, that's how your Christian life began. It began with answer prayer. Every Christian life begins with answer prayer. Just like Solomon, who prayed, Oh, Lord God, go to your resting place. Talking about the temple. Oh God, go to the temple. Oh Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love. Everyone who is saved through faith in Jesus Christ also prayed a similar prayer when they first got saved. Okay, you didn't use those words, I'm sure, but it was something similar. Oh Lord God, come into my life. Okay, we're the temple now as well, right? Jesus is the temple, we're also the temple. Oh God, come into my life. Oh Lord God, do not turn your face away from me, a sinner. Remember your steadfast love. In other words, God, lo- love me. Right? Don't forget about me. Save me. Isn't that what you prayed when you were saved? And then let me ask you, what happened when you prayed that? Didn't God answer? Isn't that why you're a believer? So don't tell me you don't have testimonies of answer prayer. That's how your Christian life began. That's why you're here, Hopefully. So let me turn the tables around and ask you, if you started the Christian life with God answering your prayer, then why would you think he won't answer your prayers now in a time of crisis? See, I turned that table around on you. (laughs) Okay, if that's how you started the Christian life with an answer prayer, the most important answer to prayer, then why would you think God's not going to answer your most desperate prayer now in a time of crisis? Okay, God is faithful, brothers and sisters. No, I've shared a lot about my family over the years and the, and the terrible things that, you know, happened to us. I believe by God's sovereign hand, he allowed it to do all these things. But I remember, I remember there was a point in my family when things were just dying, literally. And I don't see that lightly. But I had a younger brother who passed away unexpectedly. And then things just started dying, my, my parents' marriage. And then I remember, I, I don't think I've ever shared this, but uh, there was a point even in my mom's life when so many things were kind of falling apart, she told me, Roy, um, I've been spending a lot of time just driving out to one of the memorial parks. Memorial park is where they have people buried right in the ground. It's a funeral place. I'm like, why? why? Why are you going there? She's like, I don't know. I just get drawn. And so I remember just even hearing things like that from my mom, my own mom. And she said, I don't know, it's just a very peaceful place. I get drawn to that. I just, I just drive out there and I sit there for hours. 
And so I remember times like that when things were just dying in my family. And during that time, I remember I had this conversation with my dad. I'm like, you know, dad, I said, dad, you know, in a moment, you know, life can turn around, dad. And he, he didn't believe me at the time. He, you know, he's like, whatever. But I said, no, I, I believe God. God can turn around our lives in a moment, right? In a single day, that can happen. And you know what? I don't know if I truly believe that. I, I don't even know if I was faithful in prayer. But I tried, you know, I tried praying and, and periodically, you know, my, my mom would come back to God, you know, she would go away and then come back, go away and come back and she would pray. And, and I'm here to tell you, brothers and sisters, in that, in that time of crisis and desperation, God answered every single prayer. God answered every single one. There's not a single one that he did not answer. Not a single one. You need to understand how faithful God is, how good God is. Because we are in Christ. He is the temple we run to. You cry out to him in time of crisis. He is faithful. He says, I will hear you. My eyes are open to you. I will heal your land. I will heal your life. So don't tell me that God doesn't answer prayer or your prayers. Don't tell me that. So do you have that faith? The faith to cry out to God. That is the cry of faith. Please. So you need to hear God's word. But number four, there is a cry for salvation. A cry for salvation. Okay, Joel 1.19. It says, To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. So here Joel makes it clear that he and Israel were facing a great destructive crisis. He used the imagery of fire to describe it. It wasn't a literal fire. It was locusts, but the destruction was like fire. And this is a simple question, but it's so important. But as they were facing this incredible crisis in their lives, who did Joel call out to for salvation? Who did he call out to? I know it's a very simple question. Joel said, to you, O Lord, I call. To you, O Lord. And we don't really hear it in the English as much, but Bible scholars say in the Hebrew is very emphatic. It's very emphatic. You can even include the words you alone. To you and you alone, O Lord, I call, is very strong. It's an emphatic statement. And why is that? It's because very likely in that crisis, the Israelites would not have been thinking about calling to God. I know that's a shame, right? They're the people of God. But they wouldn't have automatically thought to call out to Yahweh, the one true God. A lot of them would have called out to the Canaanite gods, to Baal. One commentator said, it is beyond question that many of Joel's contemporaries, the people living in his time, would have responded to crisis by crying out, to you, Baal, I call. They're like, yeah, there's no question. People would have called out to Baal. And so because of that, Joel said, no, absolutely not. To you and you alone, O Lord, I call. It's very emphatic. So Joel's cry for salvation was a rebuke to Israel's idolatry. In fact, their idolatry is why the crisis came, to reveal that. And in the Old Testament, idolatry is always the sin of the Israelites. Okay, this is what they constantly stumbled into, constantly dealt with. 
This is why judgment constantly came upon them. This was the sin of the Israelites. So we see constant warnings throughout the Old Testament against making idols. The first commandment in the Ten Commandments is what? You shall have no other gods. Don't have idols. You shall worship no other god but me. And then you see Israelites doing what? Breaking that commandment, disobeying God, making idols. And so this was their sin, right? The sin. And because of that, judgment kept coming. But this didn't end in the New Testament, but the New Testament carries it on, and now it expands it upon the whole world. New Testament says, okay, it's, it's not just Israel, but this is, in fact, the sin of the entire world. Idolatry is the defining sin of all unbelievers in the entire world system. And this is why one of the greatest warnings in the New Testament for Christians is keep yourself from idols. John the Apostle ended his whole letter that way. It's a weird ending. He's like, oh yeah, say bye to so-and-so, so-and-so, and by the way, keep away from idols. And so that is the greatest warning to Christians. And so then why, right? What, what is an idol? Well, idols are deep, profound things. And I've preached on this many times before, so we're not going to go into it in depth now. We've got to wrap it up. But idols are deep things operating at the bottom of people's hearts. It is anything that takes the place of God as your savior. Right? It is God to you. Literally, at the depth of your heart, it is God to you. Whatever that thing is. It is anything you trust in, you hope in more than God. It is the thing that makes you thrill, that fulfills you. Anything that gives you life, meaning, purpose, joy, peace, salvation. More than God, that is an idol. And the Bible's teaching on this is very unique. The Jews and the Christians, they're very unique in the sense of talking about idols all the time. I mean, Islam does too, but they just borrowed it from the Bible. But this is very unique to the Bible. And so God says, this is the fundamental problem that we all have, is this idolatry operating at the depths of our hearts. And so idols can be anything, right? They're, they, they're not just like bad things, but they can be anything. In fact, they tend to be the good things in life. Nobody makes an idol out of a piece of trash, but they make idols out of their children, right? Your children are idols. Your career, your abilities, okay? the purpose you found in life, that is an idol. Your intelligence, finding a cure to cancer. Yesterday, I was watching this one uh, interview. I watch a lot of interviews. <laughs> but this... Uh, uh, Korean-American, he grew up in Japan, but he's uh, a Korean, but he is one of the wealthiest investors in the world, and he said that what gets him up in the morning and what thrills him every day is he has opportunities to change the world, to improve life on planet Earth, and that's a good thing. I'm not saying that's bad. That's a good thing, but if that is his greatest purpose, his greatest fulfillment, that's an idol. He's worshiping that. And so this means the most well-balanced people doing the most noble things can oftentimes be the worst idolaters. So what am I saying? We could all be idolaters. So I'm talking about mothers who make so much time for their children, dedicating everything, pouring things out for the children. I mean, these are the adulterers, right? I'm talking about pastors and spiritual leaders pouring out all their energy to lead a church, but it's really about how big the church is or how well the church is known. I mean, that is the idolater. Yeah, I'm not talking about the, the crazy person on the street. I'm talking about people here. We are the idolaters. And so why is this so bad though, right? I mean, what, what is the problem with idols? Well, the Bible repeatedly says one of the greatest problems with idols is aside from offending God, because we replace God with these things, but aside from offending God, 
The Bible says, this is the problem with idols. They promise much, but they deliver nothing. They can't save. And even worse than that, it's not even about they deliver nothing. They enslave, right? They actually bring terrible things into our lives. Because idols, they never say no. So if you have that work, that job that is demanding, and it's not just the boss, right? You actually want to be there because you want to make more money, more money, more money, climb that ladder. I mean, is there ever a line? Is there ever a point where you say no? If your goal is to have the highest GPA among all your friends to get into that elite Ivy League grad school, I mean, is there ever a line? Is there ever a point where you go, no, that's enough? No, there's never a line. Idols never say enough. They never say stop. And so this is what idols do. They promise everything and deliver nothing, and in fact, they enslave. You know, being a college pastor years ago, I pastored a college ministry back in LA, and I got to see a lot of idolatry. (laughs) College students are um, wonderful people, but they do have a lot of idols. So do older people. But I remember a lot of idolatry in the college ministry. But I remember talking to students and just different things coming up again and again. I remember one student, very smart, but he was a finance econ major, graduated, landed a job in one of the top firms on Wall Street. And I said, oh, you're gonna go there? And he's like, yeah, I, I, I need to, right? This is my next step. And I'm like, but what's, what's it gonna look like? And he's like, well, I'm gonna be working 80 hours a week and I'm gonna be living in my office. They actually even have a shower for me in the office. And I'm gonna be living there and I'm gonna be working. And I said, really, are you sure about that? Right, what about church? What about serving God? He's like, no, this is what I got to do. And then he moved out there. And then I think just a few years later, he came back and he looked completely wiped out. Completely. I mean, just completely burned out, disillusioned. I'm not sure if he continued in that field. But I've seen that. And I've seen a young lady who just really wanted to see the world. I'm going to graduate next month. I'm going to just travel for a few years. I got to go travel. I'm like, okay, travel's good but what are you going to do over there? I don't know, but I'm just going to go see the world. Well, what about church? What about being with God and his people? I I, I don't know. I'm going to go travel. And then she did. She went and she left for like a whole year. I I don't even know where she went. Africa, Europe, Asia. And then later she came back to our church and then she wasn't even walking with God. I remember. I said, so how are things going? She's like, I'm not walking with God. And then I shared that other story not long ago of that guy. He started liking this girl who had just become a Christian. Maybe she was still a seeker. And I said, don't do it, man. <laughs> I, see, I, I, see what you're, I see what's going on. Don't do it, right? Don't date her. This is not good for you or for her. And he, he just couldn't let it go, right? This is operating at the bottom of his heart. But I got to have a relationship, right? I'm of age. I got to be in a relationship. And so he did it. And then guess what happened? She left the church. He eventually left the church. It ended very badly. And so this is what idols do every single time. So then Joel, he comes into this kind of a situation and he says, to you, O Lord, and you, O Lord, I, I call. To you alone. And we're going to close with this, but 2 Corinthians 6, 2. But how do we call out to the Lord now? We'll just hear this and we'll close. But God said, in a favorable time, I listen to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So brothers and sisters, as we wrap this up, if you're in a time of crisis right now, and even if you're not, right, do you have the faith to call out to him? And if you are, then do you cry out to him and him alone? 
or even as you're praying to him, even as you're coming to Jesus, but there's really something else at the bottom of your heart, right? And we all know what that looks like. But you're crying out to God, but at the bottom of your heart, there's something else that you really trust in. And so this is what Joel is saying is, repent of that, right? Get rid of that from your heart. For now and today is the day of salvation. Amen? Let's come before the Lord. Father, we thank you so much, Lord. We just worship you. We praise you. We thank you for all the things that you've done in our lives, Lord. How you have saved us in that day, Father, when we were desperate, we called out to you. You saved us. You answered our prayer. But now for many of us, it's been years. Years have gone by. And here we are. And maybe we're facing certain things, Lord God. And I pray and ask, oh God, that we would have that faith once again. That we would know in our hearts once again that you are a God who answers prayer. So Lord Jesus, thank you so much, Father God, for your promise. Yes, Lord, sometimes you do appoint crises into our lives. And we get confused, we struggle. But in that day, in that hour, I pray that you will remind us of everything you've said. That we would begin to cry out to you, Father. Cry out in repentance, cry out with other believers. Cry out in faith, faith in your great promises. And finally, just cry out only to you, you and you alone, for salvation. No one else. So Lord God, help us to remember that, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's come before the Lord. We're going to spend a moment, like we do every Sunday, responding to God's word. God is so good. Thank you, Lord Jesus. want to encourage you cry out to God you can do it quietly you can do it audibly it doesn't matter but cry out to God cry out to him even if you're not in a crisis at this moment cry out to him he return return to the Lord the Lord is always wanting reconciliation that is what he's always doing in our lives Bible says God works all things for the good of those who love him and this is one of the good things he's doing he he's bringing reconciliation he wants you to come to him come back to him today is the day of salvation today is the day come to him thank you Lord Jesus we worship you we thank you